Now, two Sundays ago, we began our summer in Rome, reading the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And back in week one, Paul introduced himself and introduced his gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes in him, both the Jew and the Greek. But then last week we read Romans 1, 18 through 32, where Paul shifts from the good news of the gospel to the bad news, the reason we need the gospel. Paul said that all mankind is facing the wrath of God. That's because we've all sinned, even though we knew better, and thus we're without excuse. He said our minds are futile, our hearts have been darkened. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we've been rightfully given up by God to the lusts of our hearts, dishonorable passions, and debased minds. Paul closed the passage pretty strikingly in verse 32. He said, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, it all sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? As we said last week, if you read Romans 1, 18 through 32 and feel bad about yourself, then that means you've read the passage the way Paul intended it to be read. It's not meant to make us feel good about ourselves. But we also stress that sinful mankind's predicament is only hopeless if God doesn't intervene. And the good news of the gospel is that God has done just that by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And it's when you see the weight of our sin in all of its ugliness, the way we do early in the book of Romans, When you see that, you ought to be even more amazed at the enormity of God's kindness, the enormity of his grace, and just how beautiful the good news really is that God is saving people like us. But today, Paul picks up where he left off. He continues emphasizing the depth of mankind's sin and our powerlessness to do anything about it ourselves. But he does it in a different way. And Paul directs his words to a different audience than he did in chapter 1. And you know, honestly, Paul's words this week may be a more direct hit on good, upstanding, religious people like us. So we're going to read the passage together. We're going to try to understand what Paul was saying to the Romans way back then, and then work to discern what God may be saying to us through the scripture today. So with that, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles here. If you didn't bring one, take one home with you. If you don't have one or if you forgot to get your dad something for Father's Day. But before we do any reading, we will pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for who you are and for what you do for us. That you really are a good, good father. And Father, I pray that we would come to your word this morning as children, uh, on the one hand, confident of our standing uh, with you because of what your son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. We can approach you with confidence. We can approach you with peace. We can approach you with joy because you are a good father. 
But we also approach you as children, knowing that we need your guidance. We need you to teach us. We need you to grow us. We need you to help us bear the fruit of the Spirit that your word promises us. And so, Father, I pray that we would come to your word today as children who are eagerly looking to learn from you. And, Father, again, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose and ascended and will return. Father, in the meantime, as we wait for Christ to return, we ask that you would empower us and equip us to be good fathers, good mothers, good neighbors, good friends, good sons and daughters, to simply be the people that you call us to be, to be the people that you've already declared us to be, and that is righteous in your sight. Father, we love you, we worship you, we thank you for this morning we have together, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we mentioned last week, Romans 1, 18 through 32, was primarily addressed to Gentiles. And a Gentile is someone who's not Jewish. So if you're not Jewish, that means you're a Gentile. But today's text is primarily addressed to Jews, the other side of the equation in the book of Romans. Now, a great deal of tension existed between Jews and Gentiles in the world of the New Testament. And that was the case both inside and outside of the church. Jews and Gentiles didn't always see eye to eye, even when they both believed in Jesus. One of the biggest and most enduring challenges the early church faced was helping these two very different people groups be reconciled to each other in Christ. And specifically, Paul took great offense at many Jewish Christians insisting that for Gentiles, faith in Christ wasn't enough to be accepted by God. Some Jewish Christians insisted that the only way Gentiles could be really, fully, truly welcomed into God's family was if they had faith in Christ and if they submitted to the law of Moses. But Paul believed that this idea treated Gentile Christians like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, rather than brothers and sisters in Christ. And he also believed this idea would undermine the one true gospel of God's grace. The good news that the righteous will live by faith, not that the righteous will live by the law. But now for a moment, sit back and imagine yourself as one of those Jewish Christians. So you're a Jewish Christian, you hear Romans 1, 18 through 32, where Paul absolutely thrashes the Gentiles. He just mops the floor with the Gentiles. And you, as a Jewish Christian, you're still getting used to the idea of Gentiles being equally called and loved by God. Deep down, you still struggle to not turn your nose up at those Gentile believers, and so you hear those words in Romans 1, 18 through 32, about how the Gentiles deserve God's wrath, and you might be tempted to cheer Paul on. Go get them, Paul! Those people are the worst! I've been saying for years that the Gentiles need to really know how wicked they actually are. But then right when you're getting comfortable, right when you're enjoying your popcorn while Paul really lets the Gentiles have it, then you get to chapter 2. And suddenly Paul takes the barrel that he had pointed at the Gentiles 
those people, and he moves it and points it at you. That's what's happening in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 29. So let's start reading in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose then, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So Paul's message to Jews who may have been tempted to look down on all those sinful Gentiles, is pretty simple. Left to yourself, you are no better off than they are. You're no better off than they are. Paul's telling the Jews that if they look at all the people he just condemned in chapter 1, all those people whose sin makes them worthy of God's wrath, deserving of death, If for some reason you think that you shouldn't get the same treatment, then you are sorely mistaken. You condemn yourself when you judge them because you commit the same sins. You're hypocrites. Rather than seeing God's kindness to you is meant to lead you to repentance, you use it as a license to pursue evil. You deserve to face God's wrath every bit as much as those other people You're so eager to condemn. And that's because God is a righteous and impartial judge. Paul says that those who practice sin, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, young or old, rich or poor, male or female, Republican or Democrat, those who practice sin will face God on the day of judgment and neither will have an excuse. Left to yourself, you'll be no better off than they are. And if you think you are, then you'll be in for a rude awakening when God renders to each of us according to our works. Now, theoretically, someone who never sinned would be just fine on the day of judgment. Someone like Paul describes in verse 7. Someone who in patience and well-doing seeks for glory and honor and immortality, God will give that person eternal life. They'd be a-okay. But Paul makes it abundantly clear that that person 
isn't you. And that person isn't me. We have sinned. Every single one of us. And our works are not sufficient to earn God's approval. We are worthy of wrath. We deserve death. Jew and Gentile alike. So in these verses, Paul has clearly leveled the playing field. The Gentiles have suppressed the truth, become futile in their thinking, and darkened in their hearts. And the Jews have condemned themselves by hypocritically passing judgment on the Gentiles when they practice the very same things. But how did the Jews become so judgmental, so hypocritical, so unrepentant? What in Paul's mind made them think that they were so much better off than the Gentiles when they were practicing the very same sins? What made them think that God's patience and kindness could be taken for granted without consequence? Well, remember the Old Testament? I mean, the whole thing is about how much God loves Israel. They were God's chosen people. They had Abraham, they had Moses, they had David, they had the prophets, they had the law. They had it all. God loved them in a unique way. But it appears that the Jews had developed a sense of entitlement to God's grace. And of course, if you feel like you're entitled to it, then you're no longer talking about grace, are you? It's not the first time this has happened. The Old Testament prophet Micah says this to some sinful Israelites. Hear this, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. God is with us. No harm shall come upon us. We're special. John the Baptist makes the same accusation of the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 3. He says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Again, it appears that the Jewish readers who Paul is addressing, they've developed a sense of entitlement to God's grace. They believe that God is with us. We're children of Abraham. What could possibly go wrong? We can pursue sin because we're God's chosen people and he'll never turn his back on us. But again, if you feel entitled to God's grace, then you're no longer talking about grace. So Paul accuses the Jews of thinking that they could pursue sin and get away with it because they were Jewish, because they were children of Abraham. But Paul warns them that this is a fatal error. 
But then he gives the Jews another wake-up call, and that's in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment and knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Again, it's a little bit of a confusing passage, but here's the main idea. Having the law of God isn't enough to avoid his wrath. You have to do it. You can't just have it. You can't just know it. You have to do it. Do you study the law? Great. Do you memorize it? Outstanding. Do you teach it diligently to your children and talk about it when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise? Excellent. Do you bind it on your hand and keep it before your eyes and write it on your doorpost? That is all wonderful. But it's not enough to save you. Having the law, knowing the law, thinking highly of the law is not enough. You have to do it. Only then will you be exempt from the wrath of God against sinners. Only then will you be saved. And spoiler alert, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you have it or you don't, you haven't done the law. So Paul has put arrogant, unrepentant Jews in their place. He's told them that they are just as liable to the same judgment as the Gentiles they look down upon. Because they haven't kept the law they supposedly value so much. And even worse, part of the reason the Gentiles they look down upon so much, part of the reason they sin the way they do, part of the reason they blaspheme God's name, is because of how you've acted. Paul says the Gentiles look at you, God's chosen people, and they can see that you don't take God seriously, and they conclude that they shouldn't take God seriously either. Again, Paul is condemning the Jews the same way he condemned the Gentiles back in chapter 1. But then as we approach the end of the passage, Paul gives one final argument that would shock his Jewish audience to drive his point home. And that starts in verse 25. 
For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So again, having the law isn't enough. Paul has made that clear. But neither is being Jewish. Neither is being circumcised. Again, we've talked about it before. Paul talks about it extensively in Galatians. That circumcision was the primary identity marker for Jews. And while every bit of the law was important, a Jewish person in Paul's day would have found it unthinkable that someone could possibly be in good standing with God if they weren't circumcised. You could do everything else in the law, but if you didn't do that then God's not going to approve of you. But Paul says that physical circumcision won't save you if you haven't kept the law. In fact, theoretically, an uncircumcised Gentile who kept the law, who did the requirements of God, would be better off than a circumcised Jew who didn't. Now, you might hear all this and wonder, what in the world is Paul talking about? Why does this matter to us? Well, in short, God's not looking for outward, physical, superficial forms of obedience. He's looking for people who love him, obey him, and worship him with their whole heart. Not just lip service. God's not looking for people who praise God with their lips, whose hearts are deep down really far from him. That person who truly worships God, Not just superficially, not just outwardly. That person may not get a lot of praise from man, but their praise is from God. Now again, you may be wondering, what in the world could Romans chapter 2 possibly have to do with all of us? I mean, we're Christians here, right? We trust in God's grace, not the law. So who needs to talk about all this law stuff the way Paul did? And honestly, who cares about all that Jew-Gentile stuff? I mean, that's not really an issue today. We don't care about that distinction. And you might also think that, you know, I don't know who's circumcised and who isn't in this church, and I'd prefer to keep it that way. And you should prefer to keep it that way. But this passage still has a great deal to offer us. There are still things that we can learn from what Paul says in Romans 2. So, for example, lesson number one, this passage teaches us humility. It teaches us humility. The gospel is the great equalizer. Because it tells us that in spite of all of our differences, in spite of where we've come from, what we've done, how we look, how we sound, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. At the root, that's who we are. Sinners in need of a Savior. And it's also humbling to remember that Jesus didn't come and die only for people like you or only for people like me. 
He didn't come and die for people only guilty of sins like yours or sins like mine. He died for Jews and he died for Gentiles. He died for those guilty of the sins Paul listed last week. And again, some of us upstanding, religious, conservative people probably read some of Romans chapter 1 and we cheered Paul on. Especially in verses 26 and 27 when Paul talked about homosexual practice. We heard Paul say that and we cheered him on. Yes, Paul, thank you for condemning that. Finally, someone condemns that. But then Paul says, hold on a minute, you're guilty of sin too. You deserve wrath as well. You deserve death as well. This is a humbling passage for supposedly good and upstanding religious people like us. Christ died for the sins of the people he mentioned in Romans chapter 1, and he died for the sins of people he mentioned in Romans chapter 2. He died for the sins of people who look like you, and he died for the sins of people who don't look like you. He died for the sins of those from every walk of life, every tribe, every nation, every tongue who will believe in his name. Not just people like us. And we Christians need to be careful that we don't find ourselves developing the same arrogant, unrepentant attitude that Paul condemns the Jews for in Romans chapter 2. That we don't develop the same sense of entitlement to God's grace, as if God's grace is somehow a license for us to pursue sin and get away with it. That shows that we haven't understood grace to begin with. And God doesn't love you, and God doesn't love me because we're any better than anybody else, but because he is exceedingly gracious. We may occasionally be tempted to conclude that other people's sins are somehow more worthy of judgment than ours and look down on them for it. We may be tempted to condemn other people for certain sins, but then when we commit the same sins, we have 10 or 15 reasons why in our case it was okay. In our case, it was justifiable. We may be tempted to take God's kindness and patience towards us for granted and use it to pursue sin rather than pursuing holiness. But may we remember our constant need for God's grace, every single one of us. Whether we've been Christians for five minutes or for five decades, we are still just as much as ever dependent upon God's grace for our salvation. None of us in this room needs God's grace any less than the sinners around us. No matter what your sins are and no matter what their sins are. This this passage teaches us humility. Now when Paul tells the Jews that they're being hypocritical for judging the Gentiles or condemning the Gentiles for the very same sins that they commit themselves. Does this mean that because we're all sinners... Because we're all fallen, that none of us is ever allowed to say anything to anybody else about sin. I don't think so. But it does mean that when we speak about the sins of others, we do it with mercy and grace and humility. We acknowledge that we are all sinners. And we confront each other with sin for their good and for their repentance, not to make ourselves look better. Not to condemn them. We address the specks in other people's eyes, but we never forget the logs 
that exist in ours. Again, this passage goes a long way in teaching us humility, especially in how we view those around us. But then this passage also reminds us that our good works, your good works, my good works, will not save us. Now again, hypothetically, could someone who properly honored and thanked God be saved by their works? Yeah. Hypothetically, could someone who perfectly did the law be saved by their works? Yes. But sadly, those situations are purely hypothetical. Paul's overarching point from last week and from this week is that mankind is universally sinful. And left to ourselves, depending upon our works to earn God's approval or keep God's approval, we are all without hope in this life and in the next. That's the gospel message that Paul shares, that he's so desperate to get to Rome to share with anybody who will hear it. That's his sense of urgency. Now, while good works won't save us, that doesn't mean that good works don't matter. I mean, Paul does speak repeatedly about obedience in this passage. He condemns the Jews for not being obedient to the law they claim to hold so dear, for not living up to their words with their actions. He says that the Gentiles blaspheme God because of the Jews' disobedience, which is a horrible possibility to consider in our own lives. Think about that possibility in your life. That someone who doesn't know Christ could look at your life, know that you are a Christian, see that you do not take God seriously, and thus come to the conclusion that they shouldn't take God seriously either. That is a frightening possibility to consider. So while our good works won't save us, they never have and they never will, that doesn't mean that our good works don't matter. At the end of the passage, Paul says that true circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. The New Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit indwells those who believe in Christ. He spurs us on to good works of love and worship and obedience. The kinds of good works that we didn't do before because of our sin. In other words, we are saved for good works by the Spirit's power even though we are not saved by our good works. And then a third lesson is that this passage encourages us to be in even more awe of Jesus. The only exception to Paul's rule that mankind across the board is guilty of sin, the only exception is Jesus Christ. Because he's the only man who lived in perfect obedience to God the Father, both inwardly and outwardly. That's because he wasn't just man. He's also fully God. Jesus in and of himself deserves honor and glory, which we don't deserve. He's the only man who deserves praise from God the Father, even though he didn't get any praise from men when he died on that cross. And coincidentally, or rather not coincidentally, Christ is our only hope. Jesus lived this perfect life and died on the cross for all who would believe. And those who believe in his name are declared righteous because he is righteous. Those who believe in his name are marked and changed inwardly by the Holy Spirit, not just outwardly by a knife. 
Those who believe in his name inherit eternal life, not by our works, but by his. And those who believe in his name will be able to stand in the day of judgment, not with confidence in ourselves, but with confidence in him. That's the good news. That's the gospel. For Jews and for Gentiles, for young and for old, for rich and for poor, for mankind, for sinners. That is the good news. And it's good news for each and every one of us. Now, as Paul said both last week and this week, we have no excuse for our sin. Left to ourselves, we have no hope. But the gospel is that we haven't been left to ourselves. God has intervened, and we do have a Savior. He's the Savior of sinners, whether they be ungodly and unrighteous Gentiles, from Romans chapter 1, or arrogant and hardened Jews, from Romans chapter 2. You know, there are all kinds of things in this world that divide us. Sex, skin color, income, nationality, language, politics, you name it. It is so easy for us to make distinctions, so easy for us to discriminate against each other for any number of reasons. It's incredibly easy to name all the things that make us different, incredibly tempting to look down on other people who are different from us. But Romans 1 and 2 reminds us that in the eternal scheme of things, we're all in the same boat, sinners in need of grace. And in Christ, God has provided that grace. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we live within that grace. And the way we view ourselves, the way we view and treat others, and all for the glory of God. We are all dependent upon his mercy, dependent upon his kindness, dependent upon his grace. Regardless of what our sins may be, regardless of where we come from or what we've done. That's what Romans 1 and 2 teaches us. And next week, as we move into chapter 3, we'll see that the good news that Paul talks about so much is for people like you and for people like me. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Again, it's so incredibly tempting to look at others and judge them condemn them, always giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt, giving people like us the benefit of the doubt, justifying ourselves, excusing ourselves, and yet condemning those who are different from us. But Father, again, I pray that as we read the book of Romans, especially last week and this morning, that we would remember this core truth that in the big scheme of things, we are all sinners. That none of us needs God's grace any more than anybody else. And Father, I pray that would give us a great sense of humility. I pray that we would speak and act and think about other people in a more God-honoring way. I pray that we would recognize the urgency of the gospel. That without the good news, without your son's intervention... We truly are hopeless, every single one of us. And the only reason that any of us have anything to look forward to, any confidence, any joy in the eternal scheme of things, is because of what you've done for us through your Son. 
And so, Father, I pray that as we look at ourselves and look at others, we'd be reminded that we are all sinners and that ultimately our hope is in you, our hope is in your grace and nothing else. Father, again, we love you, we worship you, we honor you. Thank you for saving people like us. No matter what our sins look like, no matter where we've come from, we are in awe of your grace and your kindness. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.